0: Well, we are coming near the end of our journey through Job. And and over the past uh, few weeks, you know, different times, I've kind of painted the the picture for you of of Job being in a courtroom. And, And even last week, as we looked at closing arguments, we had that kind of courtroom idea, that courtroom picture. Today, I want to paint a different picture as we move into the section that we have today. And I want you to think of the book of Job not just as a courtroom scene now, but think of it as a a drama on a grand stage. And, And as the audience, we've been able to watch this drama unfold. We were there, weren't we, when the curtain opened, and we saw the description of this man, Job, that God saw, said was upright and righteous. And we saw the conflict as it came about in, in heaven as the accuser came before God and said, and God said, have you noticed my servant Job? And the accuser basically said, Job only worships you because you give him stuff. And, and we saw and, and we still scratch our heads at the willingness of God to allow Job to go through great trials. Losing his children and all of his wealth in a moment. And we saw how the drama then intensified as not only did he lose all his children and all of his wealth, as it were, and his status, we saw him then lose his health as he was stricken within an inch of his life. We've seen time and again how Job felt it. He was dying. And as we sat there and we grieved for Job and as we grieved for his wife, we were comforted that three friends made the journey to be there. And for seven days they sat and they waited and they just wept with him. But then in response to Job's lament, they unloaded on him. And for chapter after chapter, speech after speech, they kept driving home a wrong theology about God, a theology that says God only blesses you when you're good and when you're bad God just cuts you down and a theology that said Job you're only in this difficult situation because bad things only happen to bad people and God is punishing you and we know because we were there for the first scene that's not true and what that does in Job is it raises up in him a defensiveness and even a demandingness And Job says, I do have something to say before God. I need to be there before God. I need to come forward. And in the midst of that, Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. And I know my advocate is there. And so there's this mix of faith and struggle and demandingness. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been there. And after that, as, one, as I mentioned once, the one writer says, the toing and the froing, we as the audience are worn out. And we have this breather where we talked about what true wisdom is. And we were reminded yet again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then last week we saw as Job issued his closing arguments, And even said at the end of his closing argument, I am signing my defense and I tell you, God, come down and sign your accusation against me. And as the audience, when it says the words of Job were done, we're on edge. What will God do? What will God say? How will God respond? And all of a sudden, from almost out of nowhere, a fourth character comes in. Someone we've never been introduced to. Someone we, we don't have any background. We don't know where he is. He kind of comes charging onto the stage. And, and we are taken aback. It's as if before God gets a chance to say anything, somebody else comes in and he's going to have his say. You'll find his story beginning, or his speech, beginning in Job chapter 32. He's an interesting person. Uh, his name is Elihu. And he has the most Hebrew name, Of all of the characters that are mentioned, Elihu means, he is my God. And Elihu comes in and he says, I'm speaking up for God. I'm going to speak up for God and and I'm going to tell you what God should say. And for six chapters he goes on almost nonstop, almost circular breathing as he just goes on and on. And what we will find, Lord willing, next week, is that there comes a point where God just interrupts him. At least that's my take. Now, I have to admit, not a fan of Elihu, but I think he's here, inserted here in the book of Job for a specific purpose. You see, in the midst of all of his verbiage, he does speak. Some truth that some of the others do not. And yet, before you can get to that truth, there's a lot of other stuff. You see, my description of this younger man, and that's one of the things we'll discover, I would, if I picked a word, I would say he's unsavory. And here's why I say that. He's not evil. He's just disagreeable. His approach and his demeanor are at best off putting. And I think they get in the way of what he wants to communicate. And yet, with all of that, I believe that sometimes God uses unsavory characters. To understand his unsavoriness, we need to look at a few things, and it begins right away in chapter 32, if you're there. Chapter 32, beginning in verse 1, we read, so these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes, but Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry. Angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job, yet he yet had condemned him. And now Elihu waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing to say, his anger was aroused. Elihu is angry. The word that's translated angry is a word that literally means to flare at the nostrils. I mean, he is physically angry. His muscles right here on the neck are just standing out. His his face has gotten red. He's flaring at the nostrils. He is angry, really angry. And I think about that and I think of the other things I know from Scripture where the Proverbs would say it is the wise who turn away anger. And I look at Elihu and I, I think of what James had to say. Man's anger does not accomplish the righteousness God's de- God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires, James 1.20. And yet Elihu is angry, but is his anger going to produce God's righteousness? I don't think so. Now he is going to claim that he is speaking on God's behalf, that he is the defender of God as if God needed a defender, but the way that he does it is brash and angry. And quite frankly, it was a chore every time I've gone through Job and I get to chapter 32 it's like all right I'll get through this because it's just tough but not only is Elihu angry he's disrespectful I think it's very important whenever we study the Bible that we do our best to try to understand the Culture from which the scripture was written. And that reality is really helps us as we understand Elihu. He mentions here and he several times, uh, in fact, I'll pick it up in verse 6: I am young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful. 32 6. Not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it's the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. So in other words, he said, you know what? I've waited. I've waited here on the side of the stage. And I've just listened. And, and I wasn't going to speak until you were all done. But now it's my turn. And so in that sense, yes, he's right. He respects age. He respects their right to speak first. He didn't speak up until he, he, it was right. That's great. But then he does something throughout his speech, speeches that we don't notice right away in our Western culture. In our Western culture, we tend to think that everybody's on the same level. And uh, so we, we, we treat everybody on the same level. Uh, but yet, we understand that we're not all on the same plane. Let me, let me set it up this way. When a a person is elected to be the president of the United States of America, even their closest friends address that person as Mr. President or maybe someday Madam President. It's a sign of respect. My wife and my daughters have all been teachers. Now, when my wife started teaching, she was 23 years old. Do you know what the parents of her students, who were a lot older, called her? Mrs. Howington. She was their student's teacher. They showed her respect. I've taught college classes. When, I was at, when we were in Indiana, I was, a, I was one of the kid profs at, at Grace College. There were four of us that were kid profs. We were all young adjunct professors. You know what my students called me, even though I was barely 10 years older than them? Prof. It was a sign of respect. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, and even in Eastern cultures today, older people, people with positions of authority, are never addressed by their first name. Uh, They are addressed by their title, and in the, even in the book of Ruth, when Boaz goes to the, as an elder, as a leader in the community, goes to the city gate to begin to negotiate for taking on Ruth and Naomi, there is another kinsman redeemer who's ahead of him in line, and he doesn't call him by name. He doesn't say, hey, Bob, come on over here. have to see. We've got to talk. He says, hello, my friend. Can we talk? Now, granted, this book is named after Job. And granted, God and the accuser used Job's name, but in the ancient Near East, a greater could address a lesser by their name. But, and Job's three friends never address him by his name. However, in his speeches, Elihu consistently Shows disrespect for Job by directly addressing him three times. In in 33.1, he says, But now, Job, listen to my words. You don't do that in the ancient Near East. He could have said, But now, sir. But now, friend. But when he says, But now, Job, he's bringing Job down to his level. It's a sign of Disrespect. He does it again in, 30, in, in verse 31 of the same chapter. He does it again in 37, 14. Three times he addresses Job directly by his first name. That is not done. It's disrespectful. And then six times he addresses Job indirectly using his name again. He does it in 32, 12. But you I, give you, I gave you my full attention, but no one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. None of them said Job, but he does. He does it in 32.12. He does it again in 34.5. He does it again in 34.7. He does it again in 34.35. He does it again in 34.36. He does it again in 35.16. And, and it, basically, he's saying, Job, we're on the same par. Oh, you may be older than me, but... I don't have respect for you." We'll see in a minute that while there's truth in what Elihu says, it's not always what you say, it's how you say it. And remember, culture does matter, and I believe Elihu is disrespecting Job because of another character quality that comes out in him, Elihu is arrogant. He presents himself as having the answers. He presents himself as the one speaking for God. He presents himself as just as wise as Job and his three friends. Know what he says here in chapter 33, verse 33. But if not, I'm going to pick it up in verse 32. If you have anything to say, answer me, speak up, for I want to vindicate you. But if not, then listen to me, be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. You know, you punk. <laughs> Listen to me, man. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm 20 years younger than you, Job, but I'm going to teach you wisdom. I'm going to school you. Call me the bus driver. I'm taking you to school today. You know, that, that's, he's arrogant. And you think, well, that, is that so bad? Well, that arrogance really comes to a head in chapter 36. Listen to these words. Chapter 36, verse 4. Be assured that my words are not false. One who has perfect knowledge is with you. One who has perfect knowledge is with you. And what's amazing is those are the same words he uses one chapter later to describe God. 37.16 Do you know how the clouds hang poised? Those wonders are of him who has perfect knowledge. Job, I'm as close as you're going to get to God. You better listen to me. That is the height of arrogance in my mind. Not to mention, Elihu is overly wordy. Everything he says in six chapters could be really boiled down to about a chapter. He just goes on and on and on. When I was studying for my degree in counseling, I also had to be going through counseling. And I remember one time, and you may not know this, but I have a lot of words to use up on a regular basis. You know, uh, the, the statistics say that m- women have roughly about 20,000 words a day to use and men have 10,000. I think, I'm, I think that's my feminine side coming through. I usually have about 20,000 to use. And I remember my counselor saying to me, Scott, you use words to s- protect yourself. He said, What you do is you make a point and then you just start surrounding it with all kinds of verbiage until nobody knows what the point you uh, made were because you've surrounded it with so much verbiage and they, they, then, then you're protective because they can't really, they don't even know where to start to say, to counteract that. I was reminded time and again less is more. Nobody told Elihu that. He is overly wordy. He speaks for six chapters, and and even with the one where he says, come on, answer me if you can, then he just goes right back in. He doesn't leave room or space for that answer. And much of what he says can be boiled down to much of what has already been said. In chapters 1 and 2, remember the accuser says, Job only worships God because God gives him stuff, and God blesses him. Elihu says the same thing, 35.3. Yet you, know, ask him, yet, you ask him, what profit is it to me and what do I gain by not sinning? In other words, Job, you're saying God's not unjust. You're saying, what, if, if I don't sin, what do I get because I'm messed up? It's the same thing that's been said. He summarizes Job's words and accused Job of being self-righteous. He says, if you're righteous, what do you give him? What does he receive from your hand? He's telling Job, your self-righteousness doesn't benefit God. But God never calls Job self-righteous. And he also puts God in this box. In 34.11 he says, God repays everything for what they've done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. Now I know that God holds us accountable. But I know also that God reminds us time and again that he's a gracious and compassionate God. He says this in 36.11 and 12. If they obey him and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. If you obey and serve God, you're going to be rich and content. That's what he says because that was the theology of the day. God blesses people who do good things, but if they do not listen to him, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. It's overly wordy when you can boil down six chapters into a few sentences and get the gist of them. Elihu, Elihu accuses Job of sinning. Listen to these words from chapter 34, verses 7 and 8. Is there anyone like Job who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with the wicked He accuses Job uh, here of outright rebellion against God. And the problem is, remember, we've been in the play. We were there in the opening scene. We've seen it all the way through. We know how God feels and how God uh, assesses Job. And Elihu finally misrepresents the God he's to be speaking for. In chapter 33, I won't read all 11 verses, I just want to emphasize one. He paints this picture of God bringing suffering into somebody's life before there is sin so he can kind of preempt and turn them the wrong way before he has to. Verse 30 says of chapter 33, is that what I said? Thirty-three. Yeah, yeah. chapter 33, verse 30. Says to turn God, does all these things to a person twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit that the light of the life may shine in them. In other words, God brings bad stuff in your life before you are even have even done anything bad, just so he can show you that he's boss and turn you away. He paints a picture of God who is totally inaccessible. Why am I so hard on Elihu? God totally ignores him. Some people say, well, God doesn't say anything to condemn him because what he said was right. I would would take issue with that. After you've orated for six chapters and finally God speaks, wouldn't you want an attaboy? Wouldn't you want a little pat on the back saying, you know what, you're good. I'm going to take it from here. But listen to this guy. God completely ignores him. Well God doesn't condemn Him, I would rather be condemned than ignored. He completely ignores Him. He, he in fact, as I've said, and I'll, I'll bring it up again next week, I've read this text repeatedly, it, it just really seems that God just steps in. There's not even a stop, there's not even a break. I'll give you a precursor. Here's, this is a, a commercial for next week. 37:23. The Almighty is beyond our reach, exalted in power, and His justice and great righteousness He does not oppress, therefore people revere Him. For does He not have regard for all the wise in heart? Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? He's not talking to Elihu. He's talking to Job. He completely interrupts and ignores Elihu. But there's good news. Sometimes unsavory characters can speak truth. I think it was Dawson Trotman. Dawson Trotman was the man who started what we now know today as the Navigators, our our Missionaries of the Week, Kirk and Janice Reynolds, are with the Navigators. And, and, And this statement is attributed to him. In every criticism, there is a kernel of truth. And look for the kernel of truth in that criticism. In Elihu's verbiage, there are some kernels of truth. And today I want us to focus on those kernels of truth. And the first one is in chapter 33, verse 14. Elihu says, For God does speak. Now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing, to keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. God is not silent. Elihu speaks the truth here. God is not silent. God does speak. God does not ignore us unless we need to be ignored, but God speaks. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that God at one time spoke through the prophets, but now he's spoken through his son. God speaks. God speaks to you and me. He speaks to us through his word, he speaks to us through the proclamation of his word, he speaks to us in the stillness of the night. He speaks to us through a friend that comes along in the right way. God is not silent. He speaks. Elihu is right here. That's truth that he's saying here. The next chapter over, chapter 34, beginning in verse 10, he says, So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays everything for what everyone for what they've done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. It's unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together. And mankind would return to, to dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Can someone who hates justice govern? Will you condemn the just and the mighty one? Is he not the one who says to kings, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked? Who shows no partiality to the princes and does not favor the rich over the poor? For they are all the work of his hands. God is not silent. God is not unjust. God does hold us accountable. God does not pervert justice. God does not show partiality. We hear the cry for justice so much in our society today, in our world today. And what we need to be careful about when we cry for justice is we need to be careful that our definition of justice isn't about payback or revenge. True justice treats treats each party with fairness. True justice is able to mete out what is deserved impartially. Elihu's contention is that only God is fully able to deal with humanity in perfect justice. And I would wholeheartedly agree with that. But I would add to this, because I have and you have the advantage of looking at Job from this point in time. We get to look back at Job through the cross that we just celebrated, the communion, the death and burial, resurrection of Jesus. And the just God has in reality not treated us fairly. Because were he to have done that, there would be no cross. There would be no forgiveness. God submitted his son to justice, to pay the price for our sins. If he treated us as our sins deserved, none of us would be here. True justice does reward the good and punish the bad. But God took the punishment on himself He, in a sense, showed partiality to all of humanity. Oh, our God is not unjust. And I can agree with Elihu on this point. In chapter 37, verses 23 and 24, he says this. And we read it already once. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness, he does not oppress. Therefore, people revere him, for he does not have regard. For does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? Does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? In other words, he's just kind of reiterating what was said in chapter 28. The fear of the Lord is the best path. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's interesting, though, Elihu's view of God is he's up here and he's untouchable. Yet, in the book of Isaiah, right around chapter 60, the prophet says, this is what God says, I dwell in a high and lofty place. Yes, our God is untouchable. Yes, he dwells in a high and lofty place. And then he says, but also in the humble and contrite God is is a God who wants us to show awe and fear and respect of him. When we do that, it humbles us, and then we find he's right there with us. In his final words, in this speech, mixed with arrogance and disrespect of Job, Elihu does paint a picture of a powerful and sovereign God, but we're going to get that display. When we get to chapter 38 and we start looking through God, I am glad it was Job there and not me, because you will, even reading that, you will be shaking in your boots because it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the mighty God. Elihu leaves us with a word picture of a God who is transcendent and available. He does some good things. It's not always what you say, it's how you say it. But our response isn't to continue to kind of go after Elihu. He's just a person, a human like you and me. Our response should be to take a step back and say, I need to choose the fear of the Lord. I need to choose to truly seek him because he tells us when you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. When I choose the fear of the Lord, when I choose to put him first, when I choose to to stand in that unique mix of total awe and and yet somewhat fear, uh, when I choose that, then I discover, oddly enough, that he's not there to smack me. He's not there to put me down. He's there beside me. He's there with me. He's there loving me. He calls me to holiness because he is holy. He calls me to live my best life in his presence. But then he gives me all I need to live my best life in his presence. Waiting through Elihu's speeches is very, very difficult because there is just so much verbiage. In in this grand drama that we call the book of Job, we as the patrons sitting in the theater begin to get weary. We're wondering when will this scene end? What's going to come next? How do we bring this to a resolve? We're, We're at that point of tension where we want to see where's the resolution? Where's the conclusion? And we're ready for someone to make sense of it all. And we will find great relief when God steps onto the stage and says, Enough! But for today, we walk away with the brash, angry words of an arrogant and disrespectful young man And a reminder that God can, and will, and does, use everyone, even unsavory characters. And when we wade through all the verbiage, we realize we do serve a God who has spoken and will speak. We serve a God who is just. We serve a God who reminds us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and we serve a God who is also at the same time loving and gracious and compassionate, who loved each of us so much that in the fullness of time, he sent his son, born of a woman, to die on the cross for your sins and mine. We're reminded again that it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. So allow the words of an unsavory character to still be used of God to move you closer to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. What a great reminder today that uh, as flawed as we all are, as flawed as Elihu is, you still find a way to use us. You still find a way to let us be mouthpieces for your truth. You still find a way to show us who you are. Thank you for what we've seen. Thank you for that reminder today that you still are the God who was on the throne using and working to bring glory to your name in Jesus' name.